Hi, I'm Perry, and you're listening to The Beauty Brains. Hello and welcome to The Beauty Brains, a show where real cosmetic chemists answer your beauty product questions and give you an insider's look at the cosmetic industry. This is episode 319. I'm your host, Perry Romanowski, and with me today, as always, Valerie George. Hello, Valerie. Hi, Perry. How are you today? It looks like you got a little scarf on there. I do. It's cold here. Oh, come on. You do not know cold. Right now, it is snowing outside, and my poor little outdoor cats, are they came up to me this morning, and they had to shake the little snow off their backs. Oh, it's so sad. Aww. Well, I stick to my story that it's cold here. Oh. <laughs> All right. Well, it's hot on the show because we're going to be answering your questions. On today's show, we're going to be answering questions about how can you tell if a product is actually well-formulated or not? Will minerals boost your skin? How does a store brand compare to a dermatologist brand? Is it okay to use Arnica under the eye? And what is a cosmetic chemist? Boy, oh boy, what a lot. Lots of great questions today. But first, some of our great chit-chat. Valerie, uh, what's going on with you? Oh, not much. I am excited because in a couple weeks, I get to see you. Yes, that's right. Uh, I'll be in town in December. Yeah, I can't wait for that. We should um, go get facials or petties or something like that. Yes, fa- manis and petties, yeah, or facials, yes. You think I need a facial? Well, who yes. doesn't need a facial, right? Yeah, you especially need one. Oh, do I? <laughs> yeah. Uh, indeed. Uh, well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Uh, you know, I do worry about my outdoor cats. I'm going to be gone from my place. What are they going to do? Oh, is there a place? Well, I'd say you could leave a big bowl of food, but then like raccoons will probably get it. I wish there was something you could do. You know what? I'm going to go talk to my neighbor. I'm going to give him the food and I'll say, hey, can you put this out? That's all I can do, right? Yeah, hopefully he'll do that. Or some of the cats might not make it. No, no, they'll make it. I'm sure. I just, uh, because there's plenty of birds around for them to eat. (laughs) (laughs) All right, why don't we get into this beauty podcast and talk about what we found in the news. Well, I saw that Augustinus Botter is valuated at $1 billion after a recent investment round. Augustina Botter. Like, uh, I, in fact, I would say it's Bader, but Botter it is? Well, <laughs> I say Botter, you know, like, oh. anyway. Um, like your old uh, governor, right? <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Although, you know, that's really an Austrian accent. Anyway, $1 billion, that's a pretty high worth. Do you really think they're worth $1 billion? Well, I think of all the other beauty brands that I know that are like billion-dollar brands, uh, you know, from the big guys like Pantene or Olay or Dove or those kinds of things. Those are all billion-dollar brands. I've never heard of August Botter. So how could it be a billion-dollar brand? We've talked about it a couple times on the show. They're very expensive skincare products. And one thing I do know, I don't know a lot about VC money, but I have seen some uh, people that have come to me uh, that I've worked with in the past that have taken on investment money. And they have these you know, $5 million, $10 million valuations as a brand, and they don't even have a product on the market. So... 
I don't think people should confuse their worth 1 billion as, you know, they're generating this kind of uh, income because I don't right. think that's how it works. And I, I would love one of our listeners who's in the space to provide some advice to us. I just think it's, you know, OPI was a billion dollar brand. There are nearly every drugstore, spa, right. nail spa in the world. That's a billion dollar brand. Augustina Spotter has a small retail presence online. They're in some Sephora's. I don't think they're moving that much product. So I, I don't know what that valuation is worth, but it's a sensational headline for sure. I, I know Burt's Bees was a billion dollars when they got bought out. And, and I could believe that because I see them everywhere. I, this is not a brand I see everywhere. Yeah, we need a crash course. So someone please help us. Well, I got to say, I've lost a little faith in these venture capitalists who had dumped a whole bunch of money into crypto and that money just disappeared, right? So yeah. are they really that bright? And we're looking at like how bright was Elon Musk? Maybe he got lucky with PayPal, but he certainly is, uh, made some dubious business move with getting Twitter and wasting all that money. So are these yeah. investors really that smart? I, uh, that's, <laughs> that's what well, I, I wonder. I think some are, but you know, the reality is, uh, you know, they have to see value in something. And I think, you know, that's where the magic of a person comes in and, and can convince someone that something has value. I used to grade coin collections when I was in yeah. college. I know a lot about Mercury Dimes, so I don't know if we have oh. any numismatists who listen to the show. But, <laughs> wow. you know, I would say, oh, wow, I found this coin. And my uh, boss would always say it's only worth what someone is willing to value it at. So I was right. thinking something's really rare. This is really cool. And if, if no one's going to buy it, it's not worth anything, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean something is what it is. So you're saying like the Mona Lisa isn't really worth anything if nobody buys it. Yeah, if no one wants it, it's not worth anything. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. Uh, incidentally, you mentioned coins. I did not know this skill of yours, but I've been saving all these bicentennial quarters for years. I figure I'm going to live until 2076 and that'll be the tricentennial. They'll be worth millions, right? I don't think so, Perry, because, you know, I used to think bicentennials were rare as well. First of all, there's no intrinsic value in the alloy. They're a copper nickel clad. Also, uh, there were two mints that specifically minted those coins for general circulation, and they mm. each minted about over 800 million each. So you're looking at, at one point in time, 1.6 billion bicentennial quarters in circulation and then you have the silver clad version uh but those i think were for collection those were more like mint state collector coins and they they manufactured some millions of those but yeah i i, I would spend those quarters so you're telling me my entire motivation for living until i'm 107 which is to save these quarters and make a millions <laughs> when i'm 107 years old on the tricentennial that's yeah. that's a bit of a folly. Is this what you're telling I'd, me? I'd spend them now. Oh. Wow. <laughs> How about we get on to some beauty questions? All right. Our first question comes to us from Karen O. She says, hi, Beauty Brains. I love your show and really value your opinions. I consider Perry and Valerie to be the authority when it comes to product knowledge. Do you see how I emphasize the? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been a longtime fan and listener to your podcast, and I've heard your recommendations that we should try to purchase products that are formulated correctly. For example, vitamin C serums that are correct pH and percentages of L-ascorbic acid. My question is, 
If a company does not disclose the percentage of an active ingredient or the pH, how do we as consumers and not chemists know if a product is formulated correctly? That's a, that's a good question, and it shows you the uh, lack of information that is really available to consumers. Well, I have a question for Karen O. Are you the Karen O of the yeah, yeah, yes? That's right. From from there. <laughs> Let's just say she is. <laughs> oh, yay. Thanks so much. I'm such a fan of yours too, Karen. All right, Valerie. What do you think? Like, how can, how can consumers uh, figure out if they're getting a good product or not? Well, I think even if a brand doesn't disclose that percentage of active ingredients or the P or let's say they do, let's say they do disclose the percentage of active ingredients and the pH. I still don't think as a consumer, you're going to know whether or not the product is formulated correctly because that's just one piece of information. And furthermore, I think that actually makes the consumer think that the product's formulated correctly because it's like, oh, they're being transparent. They're telling me how much niacinamide is in here. And I know from my research as a consumer that 2% is, you know, baseline active and, you know, whatever it is. But at the end of the day, the product could still be formulated in a way that, you know, is not great for skin or is not optimal for skin. I mean, I'm sure the products are still safe, but you, you would just never know, right? On the contrary, you can have a product where they're not disclosing anything and it's a really well-executed product. It's just not part of their marketing strategy to disclose that information to consumers because at the end of the day, it's either not part of the brand uh, identity uh, to have this scientific positioning with disclosing things or uh, the information just isn't going to help that consumer. That consumer of that brand isn't interested. So uh, for a multitude of reasons, they won't disclose it, but that doesn't mean it's not a well-done product. And even if they disclose the, say, a vitamin C example, even if they disclose exactly the percent that they put in there and they give you the pH, if, did they stabilize it? You know, did uh, what what was happening in manufacturing? There's a lot of information that you don't know. So when it comes to it, as far as consumers go, you know, all you can do is try a product and see if you get the results. And that's going to give you the answer to whether it's formulated well or not. In truth, even we cosmetic chemists, that's really all that we have to do to be able to judge whether a product is formulated well or not. Now, if there's some glaring obvious errors in the ingredient list, we can say, ah, it's probably going to be unstable or something, or it's probably not going to work. But we're only guessing too, you know. Yeah. Well, Karen O had another great question. How important is it that products are stored properly? There's a Medispa skincare provider in her neighborhood that sells very high-end, reputable products such as SkinCeuticals CE Ferulic Vitamin C Serum. However, they stock their merchandise on a counter in the front window that gets direct sunlight. I understand these products are sealed and packaged in a cardboard box, but would the temperature or other storage conditions affect the efficacy of a product, especially like L-ascorbic acid, which is a highly unstable ingredient? Ah, great question and a great observation. Yeah, it it matters a lot, (laughs) especially for products that have claimed active ingredients. Yes, I used to do some work for a small salon and they had their retail products sitting on this shelf. They had a beautiful uh, shelf display. It was a giant shelf and they had a beautiful, huge window that allowed the Southern California sunlight to come in. And some of the products, you would pick them up and uh, look at the bottle and there would be some 
separation. Some of them, the uh, color would shift. Some of the products were colored. And so the color would shift even through the packaging. Not all uh, companies do this, but some some companies do uh, light stable stability testing where they uh, test the product in sunlight. We always did. We had two light ones. We had uh, what we call the north window. So we put the bottles in a window that was got north facing sun. So not uh-huh. direct sunlight from the south because it would heat it up too much, but from the north. So you still get a lot of light, but not a whole bunch. And we also had a fluorescent light cabinet nice. where we stored it to see what it would be like in a store. So that was part of our stability testing. Oh, good. Yeah. But not everyone's doing that, right? But either way, I would say it's just probably not great for the products and especially with heat. Heat is uh, horrible for products in general. And you do do heat testing and stability, but, uh, you know, three months in 40 degrees Celsius, heat is supposed to give you, you know, a two plus year shelf life, which is not very long. So if you have a product sitting on a shelf, three months is not very long. So if you have a product sitting on a shelf, in 40 degrees heat Celsius, uh, you're going to have a product that's representative of an aged product by a couple of years. Yeah, absolutely. So how is uh, how is Karen supposed to know? Is this uh, going to be okay to use or are they storing it properly or does even storing matter? I would probably say pass on the sunlight window and maybe let them know like, hey, uh, sunlight's horrible for products. And they they might say, oh, well, we haven't had any problems. And then Karen can say, you should talk to the Beauty Greens. <laughs> you should talk. Indeed. Hey, Valerie, we got an audio question from Alexis. Hi there. I am wondering about the fulvic mineral face mists that are on the market. Um, I bought one that is called Derma Boost rejuvenating spray mist by Morningstar Minerals and they tout that if you spray this on your face, skin and hair anytime after bathing, um, it will help boost your skin and it lists like 50 minerals that are in the uh, bottle. So I was just wondering if that is something actually effective or just a cool marketing um, idea. Thank you. I love the show. Okay, Morning Star with fifteen minerals. Isn't Morning Star a vegetarian meat substitute company? I thought they were some sort of investment company. <laughs> Must be a popular business name. Uh, one of my uh, wife's friends works at Morning Star. He's like a big wig there. Must be a very popular company name then. Yeah. Must be. Well, we're talking about the cosmetic brand. But it comes from Venus, right? Venus is the morning star. Uh, Do we get any astronomers out there? <laughs> I should How know this t- because I was very into astronomy when I was younger, but I don't remember. Was that between the coin collecting or after the coin <laughs> It was when I was a kid. <laughs> oh, gotcha. Yeah. Well, what do you think of this 15 minerals? It's got energy, vitality, and wellness. So, uh, Well, I think it... You know, it's it's a more it's a it's a marketing story overall. I haven't seen any evidence that minerals are going to give you anything really extra special for your skin. <sighs> I mean, the the claims they make are are more more like story claims. I, I don't see anything specific that they're saying. 
Yeah, I mean, we do know that elements are good for the skin. I mean, for example, magnesium. The magnesium salts are excellent for muscles. I just, I don't know if there's any studies on it. There are a couple ingredient suppliers that sell blends of minerals. They typically come from uh, seawater. And in fact, some of them are even just called sea salt for the uh, ingredient list. And some of them contain, for example, 71 elements, uh, you know, on the periodic table that are contained in seawater. So, or I should say the salt in seawater. Sure. So, I mean, we know that I think anecdotally there's some benefit for the body. I just, I don't know. I don't know what. Element 71, that's lutetium. <laughs> well, I don't I think recall. it contains that. It contains 71 of the 92 elements in Mendeleev's classification system, which are known to exist naturally in the body. There's 118 elements, <laughs> but, but okay, there's 70 <laughs> Well, I'm looking at first. I'm looking at their 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 website. Most of their products are supplement products, and I think we could say that the whole notion of, or I think I can say, the whole notion of the beauty from within uh, trend is more marketing than science based. While if you have a a poor diet, it's going to affect your skin. If you're not starving yourself, or you're not malnourished. Supplements have never been shown to improve your skin conditions. And the one product that they do have is a Derma Boost Spray. And it's a skin and hair conditioner restorer formulated with fulvric minerals and purified water. Hmm. Yeah, I, I just don't see anything in here that's you know, going to have any uh, dramatic effects. I'm sure it's a nice spray, though. It's a nice spray, makes you feel good. But a spray on your on your skin and your hair. So, is it shampoo? Because that's a <laughs> no. <laughs> All right. I think it sounds nice. You know, who knows? Oh. Who knows what it does though? All right. Well, uh, I hope that helps there. Next question, dear Perry and Valerie, I love your podcast and your knowledge and humor. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> I have done so much research on Olay, but haven't found the true answer. Why does Olay face cream have better reviews, like more than four stars, than the much more expensive brands like Paracone, La Prairie, or La Mer, etc.? I've been contemplating shifting products to Olay, uh, the ones without parabens, of course, but I'm afraid. Please provide your recommendations. I'm 58, Hispanic, and wear sunblock every day on my face. Thank you, Maria. Well, thank you for the question, Maria. Olay. You yeah. know, Olay is a big brand. Olay is a billion-dollar brand. If you're going to spend a billion dollars for a brand, Olay is your brand. Yeah, it's it's a tried and true. I actually think their products are great. When I was younger, you know, I used to think, oh, that's an old people brand. But they've come out with some really nice products that I think target younger skin and a younger demographic. And what I like most about them is they're affordable. And yeah. You know, they're generally pleasing. You know, they don't have necessarily all of the, you know, 15% oil-soluble vitamin C and 10% niacinamide bells and whistles type products that are very targeted, uh, but they uh, they generally work. They leave your skin soft and plumped and moisturized, and, I, you know, I think they feel good. Some of them smell yeah. good. I think it's a safe bet. 
safe bet is an excellent way to describe that because you, what you've got to understand is the way products are put together. Olay is a mass market brand, so it's Target, Walmart, it's sold everywhere. It's produced by Procter & Gamble. Now, Procter & Gamble is one of the companies in the industry that spends the most on R&D. They do. They spend mm -hmm. the most on advertising too, but they have a big R&D staff. They have a lot of chemists working on that, and they have chemists specifically working on Olay. And they have researchers too, not just cosmetic chemists putting formulas together. They have several scientists, I mean several, like hundreds, working in fundamental research to research ingredients on skin and products on skin. But their strategy is to get as many people to buy the product as possible. And when you're a formulator and you want to do that, that means you're going to do a lot of prototypes and a lot of consumer testing. And the formulas that are going to score well in consumer testing are the ones that work the best for the most number of people. And so on a blinded basis, you can bet that the Olay products, just taken by themselves, you don't know any brand story or anything, most people are going to like these products because they were tested specifically to, for the most number of people to like them. Why do you think they face? Why do you think the Olay face creams have more than four star reviews compared to expensive brands? That's a great question too. Uh, first, uh, because they work well and they're a, a good value, so I think you're going to get that. I also think. Olay advertises a lot, and that is going to also help, uh, you know, brand awareness. And if if someone tries the product, I think people are going to like it. Generally, it's it's not. There's nothing in Olay where where people will say, "Oh, this ingredient is terrible for you, and I'll never like it." Yeah. And there's also not a cadre of hairstylists saying that, "Oh, you shouldn't use Olay because it's going to build up wax on your face or something like that." Whereas, like. With a product like Pantene, which is also an excellent shampoo. I like it. Salon mm -hmm. stylists, lots of them will say, oh, that's terrible for your hair. And how is a consumer going to know? But there isn't that same sort of thing with facial products, I think. Yeah. The other thing I think is, you know, you can buy a 15 or $20 face cream and say, eh, you know, it was okay. I'll finish using it. Or oh, I'm going to give it to someone. I wasn't crazy about right. it. Uh, and you're not going to be too upset right? Uh, but if you spend $100 or $300 on a moisturizer <laughs> ounces, <yeah. laughs> and it stinks, uh, like literally it smells or you don't like the way it performs on your skin or it gave you uh, a breakout, you're going to be pretty upset. And so you might go to the internet and say, hey, other people, I want you to be aware, don't buy this stuff, right? Yeah. Where, whereas Olay, ah, I, I, you know, I really liked it. Thanks. It's a, it's a value proposition. The more money you spend on it, the more upset you're going to be if it's not meeting your expectations. Yeah. So that's, I think that's a great explanation. Well, Maria, I think you're going to love Olay. Give them a try. And a worst case scenario, you don't like them, you give them to a friend. Valerie, our next question is an audio question. Hi, Beauty Brains. This is Bisma from Toronto. I love the show and I'm a regular listener. Today, I wanted to ask you about the ingredient Arnica and whether it's okay to use under the eyes to treat dark circles and how effective it may be. Thank you. Have you heard of Arnica Montana? Arnica, no, I haven't heard of Arnica Montana, and I haven't heard of Arnica this ingredient. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, Arnica Montana is the species 
of the the plant that they're asking about. Wait, Arnica, did you say Arnica, Montana? Yeah. That's the name oh, of the genus like and Montana, species. Montana, the state. Yeah, Arnica, sta- Montana. It's named after the state? Or the state's named after it. It's a good place. <laughs> well, either way, I have, I have heard of the state, and I've been to the state, Hungry Horse, Montana, by the way, but I've never heard of this ingredient. So uh, are you, you seem like you're familiar with the ingredient. I am. It's been around for a long time, and I first encountered it at a trade show when I first entered the industry because this lady was selling a cream to get rid of body bruises, and she alleged that uh, Arnica Montana in the product is the reason that bruises heal much faster. I don't think her brand is around today, but anyway, that's where I first heard of it. And now, wait a second. Uh, is this used by Hannah Montana? It's just, uh, no, no. It could be. Okay. If 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 Miley Cyrus came out with something as Hannah Montana, it should have Ar- Arnica Montana in it, right? Yeah, yeah. If anyone is working on a beauty line for Miley, uh, please take that into consideration. <laughs> right. Yeah. It'll be an inside joke. Yeah. All right. What uh, what is this Arnica though? Uh, is it safe to put in your face and right under your eyes? So it's a flower, and typically uh, extracts are made from it. So it's either soaked in some kind of solvent or supercritical CO2 extraction, probably glycerin, something like that. And the extract is used in cosmetic products. And I thought for sure, uh, so many people use this, it probably has a good safety profile. And if you went over to the environmental working group and looked at their skin deep database, you would see, oh, it has a two, a green two, It, it looks really good. But I actually went to look for some safety reports and the Cosmetic Ingredient Review Board, which is the safety board in the United States of independent scientists, took a look at the safety of this ingredient and said, actually, we're not sure that it can be safe for use in cosmetics and more data would be needed. So they didn't give it Uh, the thumbs up. Huh. Interesting. Well, if that's the case, I... I don't, I don't think it's a good idea to use, especially around your eye area. Huh? Yeah, and in fact, uh, this ingredient has been animal tested, by the way. Almost all ingredients have. Uh, some of the animals that they tested it on had irritation in the eye area for 24 hours after the pure extract was put into the eye. So I probably wouldn't use it around the eye area just in case. Uh, but what I think was more interesting is this disparity between an organization that actually can determine safety based on toxicological data saying, hey, we don't know that this is safe to use, and then Environmental Working Group giving it a thumbs up. And by the way, uh, this product um, ingredient, I should say, has some of the same concerns on the website. So for example, Cosmetic Ingredient Review Board said they think it's a human skin toxicant and allergen, and there's strong evidence for that. Also, Um, the Cosmetic Ingredient Review Board said it's insufficient data to determine safety. And then PubMed says there's 145 studies that include information on the toxicity of this extract. So why is EWG then giving it, you know, a number two two green thumbs up? up. Yeah. It's a great question. Typically... They, they err on the side of being too cautious, right? They would yeah. rate some. If there's even a hint that there's a problem, it should be rate really high or really dangerous, as according to them. If the cons- if the public is talking about it or it has a chemical name, if it has a plant name, I think they err on the side of, oh, go ahead. But if this were, you know, sodium cocoyl isethionate, it would have a four or a five, right? Right. And 
I guess they they have flowing through the entire skin deep database the naturalistic fallacy where if it's from nature it's probably safer and if it's synthetic it's probably less safe but that's not true especially here's an ingredient that might have a problem there's an ingredient uh, uh have you ever heard of poison ivy <laughs> that's an ingredient <laughs> that isn't exactly safe is this on ewg what did they say about it hey, i wonder <laughs> i wonder what the ewg rates poison ivy has <laughs> yeah yeah, I just found that really interesting. Also, there's a typo on their website. They wrote Arctica, Montana. Oh. <laughs> Oops. Yeah. Oops. But anyway, yeah, I, I just found that it was actually kind of frustrating because people get upset and say that cosmetics aren't regulated. And this is a prime example of, you know, these scientific agencies are saying, hey, we're concerned about this ingredient. But then, you know, a non-scientific, you know, NGO whose goal is to make profit is saying, oh, go ahead, but the data's limited. I just, uh, yeah. it rubs me the wrong way. I mean, their stated goal is to provide information that keeps people safer, but here's a case where they're not provide. they're providing information that makes you arguably less safe. Yeah, but I'm sure it's fine. Not, I'm sure not many people are using Arnica at a high level. I don't know. Right, You're right. exactly. Yeah, don't you don't have to throw away your Arnica uh, products right now. And but maybe it is an ingredient that Hannah Montana will not put in her line. Yeah. <laughs> Oops. We have time for one more question. This comes to us from Jenny. Jenny asks a pretty simple question, I guess. What is a cosmetic chemist? Huh. Uh, as we see more and more cosmetic chemists on social media, especially TikTok, I'm not really sure how to vet them. Um, so do you need like a BS in chemistry, or how do you decide? Who is a cosmetic chemist? Is there some sort of credentialing organization or some sort of chemistry board? Great question, eh? Yeah, and I actually get this question a lot, and I actually get a lot of uh, customers through my consulting business uh, where I have a, I have a lab and I create formulas for brands and I help existing brands uh, with their manufacturing strategies. But anyway, I get a lot of people who have used cosmetic chemists, I'm putting that in air quotes, uh, that they found online, and they've... Uh, either not ended up with a product that they wanted, they couldn't take it to manufacturing, their manufacturer maybe even has turned the formula away because it's it's not good and it's not something that can be produced. And uh, I totally get their frustration because it is really hard to see online who is a cosmetic chemist. And what I think it really comes down to is, one, do they have a an undergraduate degree in a hard science? Uh, because you know, even if it's not chemistry, it could be biology or biochemistry or even chemical engineering or, or some kind of engineering degree, I think will give you a good foundation in how to critically think. Yeah, many, many cosmetic chemists have degrees in chemical engineering. I will say, even if you get a degree in chemistry or chemical engineering, you don't learn a lot about formulating in college. No. In fact, most of what you learn about chemistry in college, unless you're working for a raw material supplier, has very little to do with formulating. Having said that, it's very helpful to have a chemistry background when you're formulating because you know the principles of like emulsification, you know viscosity, all these important things, uh, even if you didn't specifically learn formulating. Yeah. 
Uh, so I would say the biggest thing is experience. And I know a lot of, uh, you know, I sell to the home crafter industry and people who have small businesses, and this isn't a knock to them, uh, but I also don't think they're pretending to be cosmetic chemists online who can go get a job at any manufacturer or a brand and, and be able to create products, right? I think it comes down to experience and looking at their LinkedIn resume and seeing where they've worked because you can... You could even have a chemistry degree and you can go online and, and learn how to formulate from these online organizations. That's great if you want to tinker around. You still lack experience and you still lack perspective. And those are two things you can't get if you've never worked anywhere. Yeah, well, much of the information you see from people who have less industry experience or, or no industry experiences, they've come to their information through a lot of the marketing of raw materials or the marketing of products. And so while they might have a chemistry background, they really have a more of a consumer mindset when they're analyzing the data that they see. Not that there's anything wrong with that. It's just a different perspective. Often people look at me as being a little too skeptical, <laughs> cynical about yeah. ingredients. And you know, it's a fair point, but I think I have a special perspective on the marketing because of my industry experience, and I know how much of a marketing story things really are. And I also know, based on being involved in consumer tests, how much of an effect something can actually have versus what the story is told about that effect. I mean, how many salon tests have you gone to and you can see, you know, makes your hair 10 times stronger. And, and while it's really, tr it's not a, it's not a lie. You have a test, which is going to prove that, but you know, you know, consumers aren't going to notice this different, even though it sounds much more impressive than it is. Yeah. Because you got perspective learning how to right. construct these claims testings. Right. And yeah, I just think, you know, there's a lot of great science communicators online and that, you know, they sure do know a lot, but I think, yeah, without that experience, some perspective is lacked. So I would say, um, you know, because there is no credentialing organization, there's no board that says, boom, you're a cosmetic chemist. And also there's different types of people, scientists in the cosmetic chemist industry, right? right? Um, you know, I would say check out their LinkedIn resume make sure they have organizational experience, either working at a manufacturing facility or a brand or something like that. I'd also say the skill set of being really good on social media is a different skill set than being a really good cosmetic chemist. <laughs> you know, you can do both, uh, I think, but it's easier to get good at social media without having the right background uh, than it is to have the right background and then get good at social media. That's just a different skill set. Yeah. There's a space in the market for everybody, though. Even there is. someone with a science background and they learn some cosmetic chemistry and they can communicate well, that's great. The home crafter who has bought a lot of ingredients, mixed stuff together and sharing their experiences, that's great. Are they chem cosmetic chemists? I think without having the industry experience, it's it sort of oversells the qualifications when you say, uh, "Oh, I'm I'm a cosmetic chemist." If I, even though your experience is that you've just worked for yourself and you started formulating based on what you've learned from an online course. Yeah. 
So there's lots of great information out there. Uh, it, there is no law that says anybody could not call themselves a cosmetic chemist. So you just got to be careful. Look into the background. Uh, LinkedIn is a great place to see what kind of experience and education do they have and uh, make your judgments from there. Yeah. And if they're not on LinkedIn, say, eh. <laughs> That's right. If you're not on LinkedIn, you can't be a cosmetic chemist. I'm just kidding. I just like got one a couple uh, years ago. <laughs> oh, sure. All right. Well, I think that's all we have time for, Perry. That's right. There's the, the music. Thanks, everybody, so much for listening. If you get a chance, please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. That's going to help other people find the show and ensure we have a full docket of beauty questions to answer. And if you have a question, you want to hear your voice like a couple of the listeners did today, just record it on your smartphone and email that question to thebeautybrains at gmail.com. And you know what else, Valerie? What? The Beauty Brains are on Patreon. Oh, wow. I think if you didn't notice, there were no commercials in this uh, podcast, which, uh, you know, I hate the commercials in podcasts. I'm I always fast-forwarding. Forward, anyway. forward, but, rewind, right. forward, rewind. Exactly. Got to get that right. But I do understand, you know, this takes a lot of time and effort to put together a show, and it's not free also to host it. So uh, the way we try to support the show is through donations, through Patreon. So if you appreciate what we do, and if you want to get higher priority to get your questions answered, go to patreon.com slash thebeautybrain and subscribe. Also, don't forget to follow us on our various social media accounts. On Instagram, we're at thebeautybrains2018. On Twitter, we're at thebeautybrains. And we have a Facebook page. And... We'll be on TikTok, but you have to look to our LinkedIn profile to see if we've got any legitimacy to us. <laughs> <laughs> we don't. We don't. Uh, well, thanks again for listening, everyone. And remember, be brainy about your beauty. Thanks, everyone. Kittens. <laughs>